If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to join me in Luke chapter 13. I'm well aware that we've been studying the discourse of Luke chapter 12. But it does not conclude until Jesus uses up these nine verses in chapter 13. I have to be honest, this is an unapologetically heavy passage of Scripture. In Luke chapter 12, we're introduced to a moment in the public ministry of Jesus where he exits the home of a Pharisee where he has had dinner. Inside the home of the Pharisee, Jesus has dealt with questions. Really, they were attacks by the religionists of his day. While Jesus was in the house, a massive crowd of people has assembled on the streets around the house, so much so that we're told people were stepping on each other. As Jesus steps out into the street, he is greeted by this scene, this mass of bodies, and he gives the Luke 12 discourse. At this same moment in time, there were some that were present there. Perhaps it was part of the conversation in the house. Maybe some were shouting out questions at Jesus. Maybe it was the conversation of the hour. But they were talking about some catastrophic, tragic, cultural events of the day. And they wanted Jesus to address... This catastrophic, tragic news event, and he does so. Surprisingly though, I'm certain of it, Jesus does not tell them what they expect to hear. He wasn't in the habit of telling people what they wanted to hear. There's two events, we'll study them momentarily, headline news. It's interesting for me to hear Jesus respond to it. I found in my study, Charles Spurgeon, who is incredibly eloquent. He speaks with the King's English from the mid-1800s, and he just sounds really smart. And when I read him, I recognize how dumb I actually sound. You say, you don't sound dumb. Some of you are like, exactly. You do sound dumb. So what I will do on occasion is I will read what Spurgeon has said on a particular passage because he will say it in a way that I could never say it. But as I was reading a sermon that he preached in September of 1861, and now you're thinking, how weird are you? You read sermons from the 1860s? Yeah, from London, England. Spurgeon was dealing with something inside of his church. There had been two tragic events in London. There had been a train crash and there had been a tunnel collapse. And amongst the Christian community, there is a propensity towards self-righteousness. And the religious of the day were thinking they should have never been on that train. They should have never been in that tunnel on a Sunday. If they hadn't been traveling on a Sunday, God would have never crashed their train. And we think that way. Spurgeon stepped to the pulpit and he said this, The year 1861 will have a notoriety among its fellows as the year of calamities. Just at that season when man goeth forth to reap the fruit of his labors, when the harvest of the earth is ripe and the barns are beginning to burst with the new wheat, death too, 
the mighty reaper has come forth to cut down his harvest. Full sheaves have been gathered into his garner, the tomb. Terrible have been the wailings which compose the harvest hymn of death. He said this, and this will sound incredibly relevant. In reading the newspapers during the last two weeks, even the most stolid must have been the subject of very painful feelings. Not only have there been catastrophes so alarming that the blood chills at their remembrance, but column after column of the paper has been devoted to calamities of a minor degree of horror, but which, when added together, are enough to astound the mind with the fearful amount of sudden death which has of late fallen the sons of men. I just wish I sounded like that when I preached. You're saying to yourself, I'm glad you don't. I'd I doze off when you preach. With that stuff, I'd be out quicker. He then went on to say this, now men and brethren, such things as these have always happened in all ages of the world. Think not that this is a new thing. Do not dream as some do that this is a product of an overwrought civilization or of that modern and most wonderful discovery of steam. Okay, that one doesn't fit in really culturally, but to them it was a big deal. He said, if the steam engine had never been known, and if the railway had never been constructed, there would have been sudden deaths and terrible accidents notwithstanding. In taking up the old records which our ancestors wrote down, their accidents and calamities, we find that the old stagecoach yielded quite as heavy a booty to death as does the swiftly rushing train. There were gates to Hades then, as many as there are now, and roads to death quite as steep and precipitous and traveled by quite as vast a multitude as in our present time. He's using Old English and Luke chapter 13 to say, in effect, death and calamity and tragedy is nothing new. And Jesus is going to form our minds and give us, as it were, a Christian worldview in which to process these kinds of calamitous events. Because when bad things happen, we tend to think perhaps they deserved it. Maybe they were doing something wrong. Who knows what was going on behind closed doors, but we know that God knew what was going on behind closed doors. There have even been times where we have talked about natural disasters hitting certain geographical locations because of the extraordinary sin that existed in those places when in all reality it wasn't extraordinary, it was just ordinary sin like yours and mine. Jesus is going to deliver straight truth about this. What does Jesus have to say about calamitous and tragic events which seem to be happening at an ever-accelerating pace? Let's look in Luke 13 in verse 1. If you don't have your Bible, those verses will be here on the screen so you can know this is God's Word. There were present at that season. Now this is Jesus standing on the street, massive mob of people. At that same moment, there were those there that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Or those eighteen, upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. 
Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Now, as Jesus often did, he will take these two major news events, the murder of these Galileans by Pilate, and the Tower of Siloam, which felled and in its falling killed 18. He's going to pivot it and he's going to deliver truth. Here's what Jesus says, and it's quite stunning. It says now in verse 6, he spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he, that's the dresser, answering, said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also, till I shall dig about it and dung it, and if it bear fruit well, and if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. And in my estimation, just being a student of the Scripture, we're kind of left hanging. Does the tree bear fruit? Did the tree get cut down? In verse 10 of Luke 13, Jesus has left this scene and now he's in the synagogue teaching. And so this is the end of the Luke 12 discourse in this mob of people in the street. And we're wondering what happened to this fig tree. Jesus has just taught incredible truth that is so very relevant for us. It shapes us. It is Formative. It is a filter by which we see the world that we live in now. Two events have been addressed. Pilate has clearly murdered, executed some Galilean Jews. And I've referenced this tower of Siloam fell. What does this mean? Jesus, what does it mean when a tower falls and indiscriminately kills Christians and non-Christians. Adults, children, men and women, evil and moral. What does it mean when this tower falls and 18 die? What's the point? Is God just assembling people together in one place so that he can execute wrath upon all of these woeful sinners? Jesus, what does this mean? Is it just the devil carrying out, wreaking havoc, causing chaos? Well, Job proves to us that Satan can do nothing outside of God's authorization. What do these things mean? It's interesting to hear Jesus talk about it. Let's just look at the news of the day. In verse 1, there were, as he said at this present season, some who were saying to him, Jesus, what about the Galilean Jews? who were executed by Pilate, and he mingled blood with their sacrifices. Now, that's something we might just blow over, but there's a story here. There's an actual event that took place. These Galilean Jews were either in the temple, carrying out their ritual ceremonial sacrifices, or they were clearly on their way to the temple, and on their way to the temple, Pilate seized the moment to execute them. Now, we don't know any of the specifics, however, we can form an understanding, historically speaking. Pilate was an appointee by Rome over Judea. Galilee was outside of his jurisdiction. 
Pilate was known to be violent toward the Jews. Pilate was not very respectful of the Jewish religion. In fact, we'll find out momentarily that he stole from the temple treasury in order to do some infrastructure projects in the city. These Galileans, history would tell us, and Josephus, the historian of the first century, would say, were always revolting against Rome. They were looking for a fight. They were zealots. This particular group must have been zealous in their rebellion against Roman authority, and Pilate, who was constantly wanting to flex his Roman muscle and prove himself to his superiors, obviously waited for the moment when they came into his jurisdiction and he executed them. And there are people looking at Jesus and saying to him, what about the Galileans that Pilate executed? Expound on them, Jesus. Certainly had they bowed, certainly had they not been rebellious in their spirit, certainly had they not been awful sinners, they wouldn't have been murdered by Pilate. In verse 4, we get the other headline. Or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. We know from history that Pilate had to address a water shortage in Jerusalem. In order to address the water shortage in Jerusalem, he had to build aqueducts. In order to carry out these infrastructure projects, he literally raided the temple treasury. He took, how the Jew would view it, sanctified money. He took their righteous money and he put it into this infrastructure. There was clearly a tower which was a part of this project along the wall of Jerusalem near the pool of Siloam to address this issue. And at some point in time, and again we're not given the details, this tower fell and in its falling 18 people die. If you lived in Jerusalem, this is front page news. This is a lead story Pilate murdering Galilean Jews on their way to the temple. A tower falling. Eighteen are dead. This is big time stuff. And they bring it to Jesus. And they want to know specifically what he has to say about it. And their thought is, it's because they're sinners. Had these construction workers not put themselves on Pilate's payroll, that tower would have never fallen. Had they not taken money from the temple treasury, that tower would have stayed standing and they'd all be home safe with their families. They bring it to Jesus. You say, did this mindset really exist? Yes. You may remember in John chapter 9, as Jesus was walking with his disciples, John said, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man which was blind from his birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That's really cold. I know people have done that. They look at me and they're like, did you sin or your parents that you look like that? I don't know. It's just to God's glory. Jesus, what did this guy do wrong? He's blind. Were his parents really bad sinners? 
And Jesus responds to them, no, it's not that he was a sinner nor that his parents were sinners. It was for this moment in time, for my glory, that this man was born blind. Job had friends. Job dealt with a lot of calamity. He had friends, we could put in air quotes, they were comforters. They come to him, they're talking to Job. Listen to what they say in Job 4, 7. Now, they're asking him something. Remember, I pray thee, Job, tell me, expound on this. Whoever perished being innocent? Or where were the righteous cut off? Job, just be honest. Tell us. You've lost your home and your business and your family. You've lost everything. Tell us what you did wrong. Tell us about your secret sin. Or at least give us a story where someone who was innocent perished or someone who was righteous was cut off. Bet you can't find one. It's actually a tidy way for us to think about life, isn't it? My moral superiority has allowed me to kind of be here. My extra level of righteousness has spared me any of this tragedy or calamity that surrounds me. Come on, Jesus. Tell us about the moral inadequacies of these Galileans. Tell us about this construction project and these scandalous deaths so that we can further sanctify our souls. It feels good to imagine we escape all of this danger because of our goodness. And Jesus decimates that thinking. Notice what he says as he gives the answer of truth in verse 2. Jesus answering said unto them, Suppose you, do you think, is this what your thinking is? That these Galileans were sinners above all Galileans? I tell you, nay. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. But what about those on the tower of Siloam? Same answer. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. They're always wanting Jesus to back their philosophy, and Jesus unapologetically, unashamedly, looks them in the eye and tells them the truth. Jesus is saying to them something that should shape and form our worldview and our thinking. When you see these events happen, when you see calamities, is your thought, what were they doing wrong? What hidden sin are they paying for? Or is your thought, when my moment comes, what will I do? And that's what Jesus is driving at. One author said this, when unexpected evil takes place, the question to answer isn't, I wonder why God let that happen. Nor is it, I wonder if they deserved it. The question to answer is much more personal. It isn't about what Pilate did. It isn't about the tower at Siloam. The question you and I need to answer is, what will God do with us in our moments? Jesus asked them plainly, do you think this happened to them because they were worse sinners than the other Galileans? Or do you think these 18 died because they were worse sinners than everybody else in Jerusalem? I'm telling you, Jesus says, by the way, from the vantage point of being the judge of sin and righteousness, I tell you, no. They were not extraordinary sinners. They're ordinary sinners, just like you and me. The question isn't, why? And the question isn't, did they deserve it? The question is much more personal, 
when it's my turn, when it's my time, what will I do when I stand before God? Both times Jesus gives the exact same answer and he says something both compelling and challenging. Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. It's not what anybody wanted to hear. Except we repent, we shall all likewise perish. All is completely inclusive. It's everybody. The Bible says it this way. It is appointed unto man once to die. I did a funeral yesterday. Whenever you are a pastor and you are performing a funeral, that sounds bad, but let's just settle on that, performing a funeral, you're very near the deceased. And it is a poignant moment because there is an awareness, especially if you are a morbid, pessimistic thinker like me, that one day it's going to be my picture sitting out and it's going to be me in the casket. And I have tried now for 47 years to take a good picture that you could set out. I'm going to have to keep trying because everyone, I'm like, nope, nope, that's not the one. That's not the one. Now, let me just put in a plug, a, a plug. We're getting ready to build another building. Someday there's going to be a giant lobby. I don't hate the idea of an oil painting of the founding pastor. I don't, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. I'm not saying do it. I'm just saying I don't hate it. If it is ever done, be careful of what you do with the forehead region, with the oil paint. Just think about it. Think about it. This is how I think. I think about the end all the time. I know that my day is coming. It's going to be me. And the fact is, as harsh as it is to deliver this truth, it's the same for all of us. And I know that we like to meditate on eternity in heaven and what life will be like with Jesus. And that's a wonderful and helpful and, and it's a spiritual thing to do. However, there is something that we often don't consider. It's the pathway between here and there, which inevitably we will travel. It's coming for us. All of us are going to die. And all of us are just as sinful as every other person that has ever lived and breathed on this earth. And Jesus is saying, you're not looking at this right. You're considering why and you're asking, did they deserve it? And I'm saying, ask yourself, are you ready? Because except you repent, all of you are going that way. And then he uses the word likewise. Now, likewise, you might have an argument with, right? Here it is. Uh, I'm just never going to go near a tower. Likewise, not likewise for me. I'm just never going to go near a tower. That's, I just won't go back up to the tower. I won't enter Pilate's jurisdiction. I'll just do whatever I can to avoid it. Let's return to Spurgeon's message for a moment. Here's what he said. No, says one, not likewise. We shall not all be crushed. Many of us will die in our beds. We shall not all be burned. Many of us will tranquilly close our eyes. Aye, but the text says, ye shall all likewise perish. And let me remind you that some of you may perish in the same identical manner. You have no reason to believe you may not also be suddenly cut off while walking the streets. This was a light message. You may fall dead while eating your meals. That's what he went on to say. 
Your bed may become your tomb. He then said this, You shall be suddenly hurried before your God. Oh, may sudden death to you be sudden glory. We all have a sad story in our past, don't we? We're all aware of some tragedy. We all say the same things. We're preconditioned. We know what we're supposed to say. I've done enough funerals to know how I'm supposed to come across and what the tone's supposed to be and what verses to turn to. But here's the thing. There's a real moment where people close their eyes to this life and they open them to eternity. That's what Paul said. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. That's the reality for a believer. We're not even supposed to boast of tomorrow. Jesus said, Now is the day of salvation. Jesus always lived with this urgency in front of him and shared with us. Jesus knew when his hour was come. Jesus knew down to the minute when he was heading to the cross. There was an urgency that was ever present in his ministry because of the awareness of death that was always in front of him. And yet we meditate on eternity and not often enough on the shortness of life. We live in a world where calamities are ever upon us and we're having to process them and we're having to communicate to kids and we're having to pass on to another generation what to do with all of this information and how to try to process all of this tragedy and wickedness and evil and destruction. And I think we can simply learn from Jesus and say this, hold on. Let it always be ever in front of us. What about me? What will I do with my soul? What will I do with my life? You shall all likewise perish, Jesus said. Perish. We know what that means. Something that spoils, something that dies off. We buy perishable food and it has a shelf life. We buy non-perishables and no one wants to eat those. Typically it's like canned vegetables and stuff. Yuck. Perish. Certainly when Jesus says perish, he's got to mean something more than mere death, and he does. Here's a verse you may be familiar with. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but would have everlasting life. Jesus said, here are your two alternatives, perish or everlasting life. Those are the two. Perish then must mean something more than mere death. It is what happens after death. It is literally speaking of the judgment of God. If you don't repent, all of us are heading down the same precipitous decline. All of us are heading to death. We're all going to get there. And unless we repent, we will ultimately perish. I assure you that's not the answer these individuals were looking for. Repent, Jesus said. Repent. Repentance involves believing God. Repentance involves an awareness of brokenness over sin. The turning of repentance is a turning from trusting other things to trusting in God. It brings about real change. It produces fruit. Jesus is saying, while you see all of these calamities, understand one day it's going to be your story. And unless you repent, you will perish. This is powerful. This is unapologetically heavy. I don't think they wanted to hear that from Jesus. It's not pleasant to gather around and hear it on a Sunday morning, but it's here. 
And then Jesus ends with this parable. He starts to tell them a story. He said, there was a master, there was a a lord of a property, and he had a vineyard. And he had a vine dresser, he had a gardener, he had somebody that cared for the vineyard. And he would come to the vineyard, and he would go to a fig tree, and he tells us in the story, three years in a row he went to this fig tree, and there was no fruit on the fig tree, and so, good business, he looks at the gardener and he says, cut this tree down. Why does it cumber the earth? We could just plant another one in its place and we could yield some fruit. The gardener steps up and he says, hold on. Let's try one more time. Let's give it one more growing season. And before that growing season, let me take all of my tools and my implements and I'm going to dig around all the roots. I'm going to break up all the soil and I'm going to fertilize it. I'm going to give it special attention. I'm going to give it every opportunity to produce fruit. And if you come back next year after I do all that and there's no fruit on the tree, then cut it down. But if there is fruit on the tree, then good. And Jesus moves on in the next verse he's teaching in a synagogue. What happened? Now the fig tree, I could tell you, is definitely a depiction of the nation of Israel. However, I clearly believe that this application after Peter's question is for everybody in the crowd that was listening to Jesus. He was saying, I am merciful and long-suffering and I am giving you a chance. So merciful and so long-suffering is Jesus in this moment that he could have said to them very plainly, I am the God of the universe incarnate. I stand in front of you, the sacrifice. I am the Messiah. I am the righteous Christ. I am on my way to the cross to pay for your sins. I am doing everything I can to get your tree to produce fruit. You have an opportunity. You have a moment. You have a chance. Take it. Repent now. Or else you will likewise perish. To me, there's so much that is applicable in this study. I think we sit here and we ought to adjust our thinking. We're not here because we are more special to God than anybody else on the face of the earth. We're not free of calamity because we have attained some level of righteousness that makes us impervious to hardship. We are here in this moment now because God is merciful and because God is loving and because God is good and by his sheer grace, we've been given another hour. We've been given another day. Now, don't think, don't boast of tomorrow because you're not certain that you have it. As Spurgeon said, honestly, think just for a second. It could be dinner, it could be bed, it could be the way. I don't know and I don't want to be morbid, but the fact is we're all going down that same path. There should be an urgency. That's why Jesus would say things like, whatever your hand finds to do, do it heartily as to the Lord. Whatever you do, whether you're eating or drinking, Whatever you're doing, do it all to the glory of God. Because you've got one shot. You've got one chance. You've got one life. You've got one moment. And it is fleeting. It's like a vapor, the scripture says. It is here for a moment and then it's gone. 
Life is like grass that grows up. It's green for just a moment, and then it withers and it's cast into the oven. All woven through the fabric of Scripture is a message of urgency. Seize your moment. Seize your moment. Now's the time. Grasp this. Repent while there's a chance. Get right with God. Do all you can while you're here because it's going to be gone so fast. Do you recognize that every tragedy should remind me and you that life is short? What do you say to your kids when there's another mass shooting? I don't mean you deliver it cold, nor merely as data, but it should remind us that life is short for all of us. I know this, no tragedy should ever cause us to doubt that God is in complete control. That's what Jesus is saying here. The tower in Siloam didn't fall because they were sinful. It happened at the precise moment of God's unfolding sovereign plan. No tragedy should ever cause us to doubt that God is in control. And no tragedy will ever loose us from the fact that each of us individually are personally responsible to God. That's what Jesus is saying. You think you've avoided calamity because you're more righteous than them? No. I tell you, that's not true. But if you don't repent and if you don't square up with God, you will also likewise perish. And then what? The judgment of God. And then what will you give? In a moment, we stand before God. It is sobering, right? I don't know how, but I know my moment's coming where I will be in the presence of God in an instant and I've taken nothing with me. I don't get to carry my Bible in. I don't get to hold up sermon notes. I can't tie my tie first. I can't walk and show a tour of what we've done. I just stand there. And he says, and what will you give in exchange for your soul? And if I don't say the shed blood of Jesus Christ, nothing is good enough. And then when I go and I recognize that my moment will arrive where my works that I have done in this flesh will be tried and there's going to be a lot of wood, hay, and stubble that is just burnt off. My moment is coming and I I I won't get a second crack. This is it. This is my moment. This is my time. You're sitting there thinking, well, you should do more with it. Right. And I'm looking at you and saying, so should you. Jesus, what does it mean? A plane went down. Jesus, what does it mean? A country invaded another country. Jesus, what does it mean? There was another mass shooting at a mall and 20 people were wiped out. Were they worse sinners than me? No, I tell you. Stop asking those kinds of questions and get more personal. When it's my moment, what will I say to God? When it's my moment, what will I have to show for what I've done in this life? It's heavy. But when Jesus leaves us hanging, he does so on a note of mercy. I'm giving you a chance. Mercy, long-suffering. You can still get a, a, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Take your shot. Square things up. Strive. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, 
head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing, and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.